The following is a message by Pastor Dale O'Shields, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer. We pray that you will be blessed by this message. Now, here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Grab your Bibles, your teaching sheets as we focus in today on this series, From Me to We. We're talking about our marriage relationships. I want to quickly add that even though we are speaking about marriage, uh, these principles that I'm talking about really do apply to every relationship in life, your friendships, if you're not married, your preparation for marriage. These are vital, vital truths that will help us to grow in all these areas. I want to talk about marriage, though, specifically. I want you to think with me for a moment about what marriage really is on a practical level. Really, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a man and a woman, a husband and a wife coming together as two actually very self-centered people who've lived on their own for some period of time and made certain choices on their own, and they're sinful by nature, as we all are, and they come from different backgrounds and have different personalities and different life experiences. Then you take these two people and you, you bring them together for massive amounts of time, and you put upon them lots of pressure and stress, and they have to deal with things like finances and raising kids and making decisions and meeting one another's needs, and then you tell them, we want you to be happy. You've now said, I do, and you've got all these things that are a part of who you are and a part of who the other person is, and now we want you till death do you part. Please just be happy. Think about that for a moment. It really is miraculous to think about marriages working because marriage really requires something beyond just the human capacity. We need something from God to make marriages work. We need God to work in our marriages. And often what happens because of all these things that are going on between the two people in a marriage relationship, you've got, you've got kind of a war zone going on. You've got people who are fighting with each other. You've got all these battles that are happening. And if it's not a hot war zone, sometimes it's a cold war zone. And so there's this tension that often exists in the family. And when there's tension, when there's a war going on at home, it has an impact emotionally upon people. Productivity is declining whenever you're in a situation of that nature, and all kind of bad things happen. Resources are drained in a war environment. And so God's design for us is not to live in war, but God's design is for us to live in peace. And there's one particular thing that I want to share with you today that's the primary point for us this weekend, and then we'll look at two points that are subpoints to this one point. And here's the thing I want you to remember from this weekend to make marriage work. Read with me. You must pursue what? Peace. This is God's plan for you. God's plan for every marriage is that you and I would pursue this thing called peace because you and I function best in an environment of peace, and peace is God's plan. In fact, we see all throughout the pages of Scripture that God is described as the God of peace, the God who gives peace. In description of the coming Messiah, Isaiah said he would be known as the Prince of Peace. And so peace is a part of who God is. Let me walk you through several passages that highlight this call to peace, this pursuit of peace that we've been given in Scripture. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God, whose kingdom is it? God's kingdom. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. What's the next word? Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where God shows up, where his kingdom rules, you'll see three main characteristics righteousness peace and joy. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 
as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So Paul is saying, you've got to remember that God doesn't stir up trouble. God is not the God who creates disturbance and war zones. No, God is the God of peace, not of disorder, but of peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule where? In your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. What we're told here is that to have peace, if you will, in our homes, we must have peace in our hearts. You can't have peace in a home if there's an absence of peace within your own heart. James chapter 3, the Apostle James connects this idea of peace with the wisdom of God. Let me read you a few verses here. If you're wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder. There's that same Greek word again. There's chaos, if you will. You'll find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also, notice that statement, it is also peace-loving. God's wisdom creates peace. It is peace-loving, gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism. Uh, and is always sincere, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So there you see that wisdom, the wisdom of God, is associated with peace. Let me take you now to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. I'd like for you to read this one together with me aloud and loudly at all of our campuses. Let's read together. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Notice the statement. Do all that you can to do what? Live in peace with the people you like. No. It's to live in peace with everyone. It is easy to live in peace with people that everything's going well with, but we're told to live in peace with everyone. This is a call of God to each of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now, I would ask you this question, does everyone include your spouse? Everyone includes your spouse. It includes your husband. It includes your wife. It includes your kids, your family environment. And sometimes we're actually nicer to the people outside of our families than we are to the people inside our very own homes. And so we're called to make sure that we are focused on and pursuing peace in every relationship. Now, the question becomes, how do we do this? How can you and I actually live in peace with everyone, especially in a marriage relationship that has so many things at times what seem like would be going against it, struggles that we face and stress in those relationships? I'm going to share with you, as I said, two major things. But before I do, I want to give you a little hint as to how this works. In Galatians chapter 5, we see how we're able to do this, and then we'll look at the practical principles that go along with it. The Bible says, read with me, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Let's stop there for a moment. What is fruit? Fruit is the result of being attached to a source. You never have fruit without a source. To have apples, you have to have an apple tree. 
To have grapes, you have to have a grapevine. To have cherries, you have to have a cherry tree. You can't have fruit without there being a source. And the Bible says that we have a source for good fruit in our life. And as believers, what is that source? It is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity comes to live inside of you when you accept Christ in your life. When you invite Him to fill you, the Holy Spirit is able to produce in you this kind of fruit. And here's the kind of fruit that God works in your life through His Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want you to think about these words for a moment. If the Holy Spirit is really at work in our lives, He's producing this kind of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those nine fruit of the Spirit, there are nine words that are listed there. Would you agree with me if you had those nine things at work in your life and at work in your family, your house would be a lot better place to live? And the Bible says it's the Holy Spirit that will produce that kind of fruit in you and me. And so to have this peace in our families, we have to have peace in our lives through relationship with God and through the grace and power of His Spirit. So as we're growing in Christ and learning how to follow Him and being filled with His Spirit, this fruit can become evident. But there are also some practical things that we can do to make this possible as well. So I'm going to talk to you today about two practical things that you can do to actually have this peace in your marriage marriage relationship. And the first one practically to do this will help you in this regard is to learn and discover the differences between you and your spouse. A lot of times couples are fighting over just basic differences. Things that are neither right nor wrong or good or bad, they're just differences. They're just differences in in personality. People have different personalities and different ways of doing things and different backgrounds and family backgrounds and experiences. Let's talk about these for a moment, the differences that we have in our families, our marriage relationships. What helped my wife and I a number of years ago is when we discovered something about our personalities through personality testing, and I discovered something and have been, has been confirmed multiple times with the different kind of tests that I have taken, and that's that, it may be surprising to you, but that's that I am an introvert. By nature, I'm introverted. I score fairly high on the introversion scale of a personality. My wife scores higher on the extroversion scale. Now, when we first got married, we had a tension in our relationship because she was always wanting to go out and do these things and be with people all the time. And I love people, love being around people, but I need a break from people every now and then. Anybody say amen? Okay, okay. So here I am. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to stay sane over here with a little bit of me time, and she's trying to go out and meet people because she gets energized by being around people. I'm not quite the same, and so we had this tension, and so we thought it was a problem in our marriage. It wasn't a problem in our marriage. It was just the fact that both of us were different. Amen. And when you and I get to that, when we came to that point of acknowledging we were just different, then it ceased to be an argument anymore. We didn't have to argue about it. We understood each other. I knew that there were times I needed to make some adjustments so she could have the needs met that were part of her, her personality and vice versa. She could do the same for me. And so it's just a difference. And when you get married, there, there are different ways people do things. How many of you know that a toothpaste tube is supposed to be squeezed from the end, not in the middle? Amen? Okay. Are you with me today, okay? And then you end up marrying somebody who squeezes the tube in the middle. Don't they understand there's a law against stuff like that, okay? (laughs) 
And so arguments happen because, you know, it's neither, there's no rule that says you have to squeeze the toothpaste tube from the bottom, but we think it's a rule because it's the way we do it, okay? It's the way we, how many know that the toilet paper rolls over the top? It does not roll under the bottom. Can I get a good amen here this morning, okay? All right? Right? Okay? And you marry somebody and they put the toilet paper and it's rolling under the bottom. Why would they do something like that, Okay? But these are differences that we have. It's neither right nor wrong. It's neither good nor bad. But how many times are couples caught up in arguments about stuff like this and all kind of wars going on in the family because they haven't learned to accept the differences that exist between two people raised differently? I'll tell you something else that makes a difference. Your birth order in your family makes a difference when you get married. If you are firstborn versus a baby in the family, it's quite different. If you're the baby in the family, you marry a firstborn or God. God forbid two firstborns marry each other. That's what happened with our marriage, okay? So both of us are the boss, okay? And so you have all these differences. It's extremely important that we discover the differences and we stop making the other person a villain just because they're different, amen? Your spouse is not a villain just because they're different. They are different. They're just different from you. And when you come to accept that reality, it helps you tremendously to let go of a lot of the arguments and contentions and strife and conflict that can so easily happen in marriage relationships. You know, the Bible acknowledges the reality of differences in in individuals. Let me take you to Genesis chapter 25, verse 27, and you'll take note of the sons, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Their names were Esau and Jacob, and the Bible goes goes to detail here to describe the differences in these two boys. Notice what it says. As the boys grew up, now remember they're twin boys, born at the same time. Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but what did Jacob have? He had a quiet temperament, preferring to do what? Stay at home. What I want you to see from that is even the Bible acknowledges the differences in personalities. What I would encourage you to do, if you haven't done so already, as a married couple, in fact, single or married, you need to take a personality inventory. Learn something about yourself. It will help you. It'll help your relationship. My wife and I have taken several of these over the years. If you don't know one to take, I'll give you a recommendation. It's free of charge online. You can go to 16personalities.com, 16personalities.com, 16personalities.com. There are lots of different ones that you can, you can look at, but there, there's just one that will begin to help you think about how you're different from one another, have a conversation with one another about it. It will help you tremendously to get rid of a lot of, a lot of the tension that you experience in your family. The second thing I want to note today is this. If we're going to build peace in our families and pursue it, we have to learn to accept or appreciate the positives in our spouse. Appreciate what is positive about our spouse. That's how peace comes. All of us by nature, when we're born in the world, we're born as sinners. Not a single one of us are born saints. We're born sinners. We have to be redeemed from our sin by relationship with Christ. That's why Jesus came as, to, as the one who saves us from our sins. He transforms us. And even as believers in Christ, we still struggle with a tendency to sin. And part of the, the tendency to sin is to be self-centered. I've told you before, even the very word sin itself, what is in the center of the word? 
I, okay? I is in the center. So we're very self-centered by nature. And when you and I are self-centered, it means that we can easily become critics of other people, fault finders of other people, and we can very easily fall prey to complaining. In fact, oftentimes we have a tendency to spend a lot of our energy, especially in marriage, criticizing our spouse, finding fault with our spouse, and complaining about the way things are going in our relationship. Now, you have to understand that's part of the sinful nature. I'll I'll prove it to you in this way. If you have children, you never had to train your children to complain. You never said, hey, son, come here, sit down. I want to teach you how to complain. You didn't have to do that, okay? You had to teach them how not to complain, amen, okay? You had to teach them how not to have a negative attitude. And so by nature, we tend to complain. Now, here's the problem. When you and I, over a period of time, start finding fault with another person and criticizing them and complaining about them, over a period of time, this this negativism that we develop toward another person eventually produces something. Here's a key word you may want to write down. It's called contempt. If you criticize someone long enough, you will become contemptuous toward them. And contempt means this, you've lost respect for them. And the way you know you've lost respect is you you use a lot of sarcasm with them or, or you roll your eyes when they say something. There are various ways that you demonstrate contempt. And according to those who do such research, psychological research and social psychology research, they've discovered that the number one cause for divorce in relationships is not finances, it's not communication, it's not sex, it's not all those things. The number one predictor of divorce in married couples is the presence of, what's the word again? Number one predictor. That when couples get to the place that they have contempt toward one another, the chances of that marriage relationship surviving begin to go down dramatically. Now, contempt doesn't happen overnight. As I said, contempt happens over a period of time when you're critical and find fault with those around you. Contempt starts with, generally, it starts with disappointment that you have toward a person. They didn't do what you wanted them to do, so you're disappointed at them. And along with that, sometimes there's hurt as well. So you've got hurt and disappointment as a part of it. If you don't deal with the hurt and disappointment, that becomes anger because you become angry about it. So you've got anger inside that's not resolved. Over a period of time, when you don't deal with your anger, that anger becomes resentment that you have toward the person. And then the resentment turns into bitterness when it's not dealt with, and bitterness results in contempt. This is how you get there, okay? It doesn't just happen overnight. It happens through a process of time. It is the most destructive thing you can ever have in your relationship. It's when you start nitpicking at one another. They can't do anything right. So how do we reverse this contempt? The way you reverse contempt, the way you reverse any of this aspect of this cycle that begins to happen in a relationship is by learning to appreciate the positives in your spouse. And what I want to do is walk you very quickly in the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to walk you through nine steps that you can take to appreciate the positives in your spouse. And these are very, very important to grasp. They're on your notes. I'll put them on the board here as well. So let's take a look at them together. Number one, to do that, you've got to look for the good. You've got to look for the good in them. So you're going to see, you always see what you look for. 
Whatever you're looking for is what you see, it's what you find. What you focus on is what is magnified. Think about the last time you were going to buy a new car, a different car. And you picked out in your mind the car that you wanted to buy. You knew kind of the color that you wanted and the model that you wanted, the style that you wanted. And isn't it interesting that even before you bought that car, you started seeing those cars everywhere on the road? It was not as though there were more of those cars on the road than there had been in the past. You were just, you were looking for that. You had now created what's called a confirmation bias in your head. And so now you're looking and you've got that on your mind. So you see them everywhere. You see what you're looking for. And it's true in a marriage that if you don't look for the good, all you're going to see is the bad. If you magnify the bad, the bad becomes bigger and bigger, and so you have to intentionally look for the good in your spouse. Notice Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8. Why don't we read this together? Would you read with me? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about such things. Notice this, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or anything is praiseworthy, what are we told to do? Think about such things. Get those things in your head. Think about them. Be aware of them. The next thing that is necessary if we're going to actually appreciate the good is we have to reflect on the benefits in our marriage relationship. There are benefits that come to you from your spouse. You may not realize it at times because in the midst of negativity, we tend to ignore those benefits, but there are good things that come to your life through your spouse. On numbers of occasions over the years, I've had people who've lost their spouse either through divorce or through death, tell me, Pastor, I wish I was aware of the benefits of my relationship before this person was out of my life. I didn't know what I had until it was gone. I took for granted what I had. I wasn't aware of it. I didn't realize what benefit came to my life until that person was out of my life. Dear one, don't wait until that person is out of your life to recognize the benefits that they bring to your life. Amen? Recognize them now and be aware of that reality. Reflect on the benefits. The next thing that we do is to write. This is a good exercise for you. If you're going through a tough time in your marriage, you're having a hard time being aware of good things in your spouse, here's what I'd recommend that you do. You go and sit down and write a letter of recommendation for them, not recommending them to somebody else so they'll marry them. I'm not talking about that, okay? But a letter of recommendation, just like you would do for a friend. This is not to show your spouse. This is for you. Where you sit down, you have to think about all the good things that you want to write about them, just like you would with a friend. If you were asked to write a letter of recommendation for a friend, you would write down all the good things that you could think about. Joe is, is punctual. Joe is an amazing worker. Joe has great character. You'd write all this stuff down. You would not write down anything negative to send to a potential employer about Joe because you want to recommend him. Well, you need to stop sometimes and just do a writing exercise. What do you appreciate about your spouse? Amen? It's valuable stuff. This is what turns marriages around. The next one, observe what other people appreciate. I'm going to give you a little insight here today. No matter how much you feel, how negative you feel towards your spouse, how many things you feel like are wrong with your spouse, you know there are other people that actually like your spouse? They actually have friends. Can you believe that, okay? Can you believe your husband has friends? It's hard to believe, isn't it? 
you believe that your wife has friends? Hard to believe, isn't it? That, that person has friends? Yeah, they actually have friends. Well, I wonder what their friends see in them. Sometimes just to step back for a moment and ask the question, you know what? My, my wife is liked by other people. They must see things in her that I need to be aware of. And, you know, my husband is liked by other people. I wonder what they see in him that maybe I'm not seeing in him. And what it does, again, it brings an awareness of the value that people have to your life. Because what you appreciate, appreciates. You might want to write that down. What you appreciate, appreciates. The next one is stop unrealistic what? Say that word with me. Comparisons. What is a comparison? Well, if you were only like, why can't you be like her? Why can't you be like him? And so we start using other people. And what happens is in a, in a conversation, if I were to say to my wife, honey, why can't you be more like that lady? Or when she, if she were to say to me, why can't you be more like that guy? What's happening is we're actually putting unrealistic comparisons on that person because actually we don't know what that other person really is like, do we? We don't know the reality. So what happens is we create fantasies in our mind about what it would be like potentially to have somebody else in our life that's not in our life. And those fantasies are based in deception because we don't know the truth. And that deception leads us down a pathway that is very, very dangerous. So you, you're self-deceived. Read this passage with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So abandon every form of evil. What's the next word there? Deceit. Notice that hypocrisy, feelings of jealousy, and slander. It says, abandon it. Get it out of your life. Don't let it be a part of who you are or how you think. Get rid of it. Then number six, the sixth thing that is essential if you're going to appreciate your spouse is to consider what originally attracted you to that person. Why did I marry them in the first place? 99.99999% of you here, if not 100% of you here, got married to the person you got married to because you wanted to. Nobody put a gun to your head and said, you've got to marry that person. They didn't do that. You made a choice of your own free will to say, I'm going to marry this person and spend the rest of my life with them. You chose them. No one forced you to marry them. You chose them. So you have to stop sometimes and step back and say, what was it? If we go back to the beginning, what was it that was so, so valuable in this relationship? What was it that I really liked about this person? See, what often happens is we, we downgrade and diminish the initial attractions that we had and we lose that perspective over a period of time and because of that, we lose the feelings that go along with it and we think that we fall out of love. We didn't fall out of love. We just stopped thinking about the person the same way that we used to think about them. And so we have to return to our original attractions. What was that that caused me to want this person in my life? And then the next one here, if you and I are going to get past contempt, we have to soften our heart. I want to talk just for a moment about this one. This one is extremely important, to soften your heart. I want you to track with me again. When you have contempt in your life, it starts, as I said a moment ago, with disappointment or hurt. We're disappointed. We're hurt. Somebody doesn't do for us what we wanted or expected them to do, or they did something that hurt our feelings in some way. And at that moment, we make a choice. What am I going to do with this? If I don't resolve my disappointment and work through it, then that over, over time becomes anger. I get angry about it, so my anger begins to intensify. 
the more I let anger sit in me and I don't resolve the anger, as I said a moment ago, that anger results now in resentment because now I'm resenting this person and their impact on my life. Why, why are they doing this to me? And so it becomes bigger that every time you focus on anger, it gets bigger and resentment becomes a part of it. Then this, out of this resentment, you get bitter inside. You're bitter toward that person. Bitter as you've got a sour taste in your mouth, a sour mindset toward them. You're now bitter toward them. And out of bitterness comes, comes contempt. And, out, and this contempt makes you hard the inside. Your heart gets hard. And when your heart gets hard, what often happens is you get past the, you're not so much feeling pain anymore. What you begin to feel now is just numb on the inside in the relationship. There's nothing there between the two of you. So there's this distance that begins to exist over a period of time of just numbness. Anybody with me today? Okay. Just, you, at least conceptually you understand what I'm talking about. And that's where a lot of couples are. They've gotten to the place down this sequence of events to where they've gotten to the point they're just hardened on the inside toward one another. It's not even that at some point you're not even mad at each other anymore. You're just distant. There's just numbness there. I don't feel anything. I just feel, if I feel anything, there's the moments that I feel contempt for the relationship. And that's why contempt is the most significant predictor of divorce. Because when you get to that point, there's nothing else there, right? You've got numb. It's like, there's nothing else to do here. We're, just, we're, we're living apart anyway. Why don't we just go ahead and move out? Why don't we just go ahead and separate? So that's what happens. You get to that numb point. You give up on the inside. And that's, that's a very dangerous place to be. And so you ask the question, what do you do when you get to that point? How do you resurrect the marriage at that point? Is there hope for a marriage? I really feel that right now, I just, I'm going to talk, just say something for a moment. I feel the Holy Spirit nudging right now. There's somebody here today, probably several of you, that you are right there at that point right now and you're about to give up. I want to tell you something. God can resurrect a dead marriage. I want to, over the years, we've seen it happen here. God can take people who are at that place and by the grace and power of His Holy Spirit, God can resurrect a dead marriage. But you have to be willing to deal with it. You have to let God begin to soften your heart. And to soften your heart, here's how He softened your heart. I'm going to give you the word. You've got to start a process of forgiveness. Because the only thing that cures a hardened heart toward a person is a willingness to extend grace to them. And to extend grace means that you choose to forgive. You begin the process, and it is a process of praying your way through your pain. And bringing your pain to God and saying, God, I want you to know that I'm really hurt. What's going on in me? I know that it looks like I'm really numb, but if I trace my numbness all the way back where it started, God, there's a root system there. There's a root that started in my life in this, with this person where I was deeply disappointed. I've been deeply hurt by them. I'm carrying this pain inside. And while it feels numb right now, I know it goes back to a seed of resentment, a seed of bitterness, a seed, if you will, of disappointment and hurt. And now, God, I'm bringing this honestly before you, and I'm asking you, Lord, to begin the process of helping me to forgive and helping me to love and helping me to make the right choices in my relationship toward this person. And here's what you must understand. When you begin this process of forgiveness, you never feel like doing it. It's not what you feel like doing. It's doing what you know is the right thing to do. And you can actually pray your way back into a softened heart. Now, hear an amen right there. 
God can do this for you. Okay? But you have to understand that he's asking you to be willing to let him do this in you. He will not do this without your invitation. You have to invite him to do this in your life, understanding it's what he's called us to do, to walk in love. Let me take you to a couple of passages as we're wrapping up here today. Jesus' words here, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. Jesus said, there's a saying, love your friends and hate your enemies. He said, you know, there's a saying out here in the world. People are saying it all the time. Love your friends, hate your enemies. You probably heard that before, right? But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, you might say, well, that verse, what does it have to do with marriage? I'll tell you what it has to do with marriage. A lot of times we make our spouse our enemy. We've gotten to the place where we're so hardened at that person and so angry about things, so numb on the inside, that although we're living in the same household, we consider them an enemy to our lives. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Pray for those who've disappointed you. Pray for those who persecute you. You've got to make the decision to love them and pray for them. And what's happening here, Jesus knows what he's talking about because this is the way to soften your heart. As you do this, your heart gets softer and softer. Luke 6, 32 and 33. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. Got that point? Jesus said, if you love people that love you, what's the big deal? It's easy to love anybody that loves you. If you're doing good to people who are good to you, hey, what's the big deal? Don't get any credit for that. And if you do good to only those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. Jesus is saying, you've got to learn how to love the people who are not always loving back to you. You've got to learn to make the decision to, uh, to open your heart and do good to those who may not be doing good to you. It's the value that Jesus places upon softening our heart through love and good deeds toward one another. And that leads me to the next thing that is essential. We have to practice the golden rule. What is the golden rule? Jesus gave it to us in Luke 6, 31. Very succinctly, he said, do to others as you would like them to do to you. Would that transform your relationships? If you treated other people the way you wanted them to treat you. And the last thing I'll give you here, if you're going to appreciate your spouse in a wonderful way, is to learn to affirm what you appreciate. Here's the key word, affirm. To affirm is this. To affirm is to speak out what you have, have, have considered a value. If I see you operating in a certain way that's positive and I come to you and I say, I just want to tell you that I noticed how you were doing such and such. It was a great job that you did. What I did in that moment is I affirmed you. If I see you doing something wonderful, I thank you for it. That's an affirmation. See, affirmation is not something you think. Affirmation is something you speak. Words that come from your mouth. And many times what happens in a marriage is that we don't translate our appreciation into affirmation. And affirmation makes a huge difference in an environment. Notice Proverbs 15, verse number 1. The Bible says a gentle answer, soft, tender words, we might say. What does it do? It deflects anger. You can change the entire environment of an, an atmosphere, of a relationship by the way that you speak. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Notice Proverbs chapter 18, 21. The tongue has the power of life and death. Notice that. You have to make the choice. Life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Again, it's talking about the words of our mouth, what we speak. Next verse here. Take notice of this. Colossians 3, 15. We read 
read it a few moments ago, and with this one, I'm going to conclude today, but I want to highlight something specifically from this passage. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Notice again, the topic here is peace that comes from Christ, rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to be in peace and always be thankful. Notice this very clearly. There are three sentences in this verse. The first two sentences, the subject of the first two sentences are the words, is the word that I circle. What is that word? Peace. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. The subject of of sentence number one is, it's all about peace. Sentence number two, for as members of one body, you're called to live in peace. Again, the subject, the focal point of this second verse, second sentence in the verse is peace. But then notice what happens in the third sentence of this verse, and always be thankful. He moved from talking about peace to gratitude. Here's what I want you to see. Could it be, and my answer is yes, it is, because the Bible Bible gives it to us, a relationship between peace and gratitude. Is it possible that if you and I become more grateful and more affirming with our gratitude that there might be more peace in our relationships. Can I just submit that question to you this this, this morning? If you became more thankful for what you have in your life and more thankful for who you have in your life and more thankful for that husband you have or more thankful for that wife you have, could it be that just in that one expression of gratitude, that one expression of thanksgiving, that out of that comes peace greater peace in the relationship? I believe the answer is yes. I believe that this is not coincidental that the Apostle Paul connected the concept of peace with gratitude. He says, you've got to be thankful because thanksgiving is essential for living in peace. I'll show this to you. Let's say you have an environment, relationship where there's been all kind of turmoil and strife and anger and frustration between people and somebody makes, makes the decision to stop that process, and they begin to walk into that relationship, and instead of bringing the normal animosity, they walk in and say, you know what? I don't want to fight anymore. I just want you to know how much I love and appreciate you. I just, there's a lot of great things about you that I value, and I just want to affirm that you're a wonderful, fantastic person in my life. You know what would begin to happen in that relationship? That all of a sudden, what had been an environment filled with animosity and anger, it may not cure everything, but it begins to settle down the fires of anger in that relationship simply by the words that you speak, by gratitude. Now, remember something about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not real Thanksgiving until it's given. You can't just think Thanksgiving. You've got to say Thanksgiving. When I say to my wife, honey, thank you, for that amazing meal you just prepared for me. As soon as I say those words to her, you know what I've done to my relationship? I've invested in my relationship just then. I made a deposit in her soul that was beneficial to her. When I say, honey, thank you for just for being a friend to me. Thank you for the opportunities you give just for us to, to talk together. Sometimes I'm just grateful to have you in my life so that I can just have somebody to talk to about things that are going, thank you for being a part of my life. When I say those words to her, it means that I've thought about what she means to me and then I've communicated to her and it actually adds not only value to her, but it's a deposit that she receives in her soul. See, what we tend to do more than anything else, we tend to make withdrawals and very few deposits. Let me show you this. In your bank, it would not work very well that way, would it? Okay. 
If all you ever do is withdraw from your bank and you ever put any money in, they're going to come get you, okay? okay? It's not going to last for very long. But we try to run our relationships that way. We try to run our relationships with a negative balance. And so you've got to put some money in the bank. And the way you put some money in the bank with another person is by saying, thank you, I value you, I appreciate you. I realize that you're, 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 you're beneficial to my life. And when you pour those words in, that's when the Bible says there's power in your words, life and death, speak life. Make sure that you're thankful because a, gra- a grateful attitude will allow you to have a lot more peace in the relationships of your life. Would you bow your heads together with me as we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word today. We're grateful for the word of God and how it teaches us and guides us and directs us. And I pray you'll take this message this morning. And Lord, it's been some fun things we've talked about, but some very serious things we've talked about as well. And we ask you to help us to digest them spiritually and to Make them a part of who and what we are to live them out in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We trust you to help us to see the fruit of the Spirit really born in our lives as we follow you. Commit our hearts to you today in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. And You can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. You begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you. 